married now for 17 years. I've known her for 19 years, rapidly approaching that period of life where she has been a part of it longer than, uh, than the part without her, which is a great thing. And one of the things that she teases me about from time to time is that I have a lot of stuff sometimes going on in my mind, including conversations that I'm kind of thinking through and so forth, and then I just start talking. And she'll go, okay, now you're going to have to back up about six steps and bring me along here because I don't know where this is coming from or what you're talking about. And I was reminded of that with reference to uh, the blurb we had in the mustard seed this last week, uh, the elders and I, about what we want to do with small groups uh, this fall. I, I think for some that may have confused more than clarified. And we may need to back up a step or two and just uh, bring the rest of you along with the discussion we have been having. Uh, Because here's our desire. Our desire is that every person in our church family would first of all connect deeply in their relationship with Jesus. That this would be not simply something which is a Uh, a Sunday morning routine that we're kind of accustomed to doing, but something in which your relationship with Jesus is a deep and living thing which affects every area of your life. And one of the fundamental aspects of a relationship with Jesus, believe it or not, is relationships with your brothers and sisters that grow close and grow deep and, uh, and grow accountable to a degree where we feel comfortable asking one another sometimes probing questions about their life. And so what we're wanting to do, we've, we've talked about how would we structure our ministry to achieve that kind of, res, of, of result, where people really developed deep relationships with one another and with God. And we've looked at a variety of ways of doing that and, and talked about all kinds of possibilities. And what we've decided to try is to utilize our small group ministry to accomplish that goal. Now, a lot of times, if you've been in a small group, maybe here, maybe in a lot of places, you know, you have a book that you go through and you kind of answer questions and, um, and then everybody gets together. And if they did their homework, which is sometimes questionable, uh, then you uh, sit and, and talk, right? A lot of times the only person who does their homework is the person who's leading the group. And everybody else shows up with their empty book and fakes it. Right? Now, come on now. I'm not the only one who, who, has, who has been in that group. All right? Um, and so what we, th- what we thought we might try instead was to base our, base our study not on some sort of what you know this is small groups are are one of those things that sometimes feels like the honors course in Christianity for some people like well we go to Sunday school and then we go to worship and then we're in small group and I'm doing a study in each one of these places and then I'm doing I'm supposed to do a quiet time my pastor tells me and so I'm doing like four things and none of them intersect with one another in any way and so what we're trying to do is bring together your personal study, your small group, and what we do right here on Sunday morning. That as we worship together, we would be looking at a passage, and then in your small group, you'd be looking at that same passage, and you'd be answering questions based not on something additional that you're doing, but something you've already looked at with your brothers and sisters here, and then looking at in more depth from an application standpoint as you sit eyeball to eyeball. And the way that that would work is that small groups would start in September after, um, after, our, um, after Labor Day. And we'll have a kickoff in August uh, to get everybody signed up. But then groups would meet weekly between September and just before Thanksgiving. And then there'd be a long break until after first of the year, and then weekly from first of the year until just before Easter, and then you'd have the rest of the summer off. Uh, And that comports more 
fully with people's, um, with dealing with reality, because we know that once the holidays hit, people get busy, small group attendance gets fuzzy. Uh, once Easter's there, we're into May, and attendance again gets fuzzy at small group. And so we're trying to set it up in a way that will facilitate both deep study, deep relationships, and also be realistic with people's lives. Uh, and, and this also would have the benefit of making it easy to invite somebody who, let's say, is new to church to your small group. Because, as an example, let's say you meet someone new here this morning, and you say, hey, I'm Joe, and you're Mark, and Mark, you really ought to come to my small group. And Mark says, great, what are you studying? Well, we're studying the fruit of the Spirit. Well, what week are you on? I'm on week six. Oh, well, when's the next study start? Well, it's about six weeks. Oh. Whereas with, with what we're proposing doing this fall would be like this. Mark, come join me at small group tonight. Well, what are you studying? Well, you were in it this morning. We're studying 1 Corinthians 12. And you'll be prepared if you went to the worship service. Or if you didn't, catch the sermon online and go to small group. And we'll be able to, you'll be well prepared for what we're going to talk about. So this is where we're headed. um, because, Because we want, as I said, deep relationship with God and with one another. Uh, we, it already feels like a family in the church here to me, and we want it to feel the same way to everybody. We want to be able to see the men and the women be knit together as brothers and sisters and to encourage each other in their relationship with God. So, And we'd also like to see about 90% of y'all sign up for a group. And I know that's, I know that's a, um, a challenge. To some of you. But this is going to be one of the key things that we're doing to help people grow in Christ in this church. And I think it'll be exciting. I think you'll have fun with it. I think you'll enjoy it. And I think those relationships will grow. And I think your relationship with God will grow. And I think that'll be really fun. And so we're looking forward to that. Uh, There'll be a kickoff coming up next month. We'll go out to Great Oaks as we do every year. For our baptism service, if you're interested in being baptized, see me. Uh, Between now and then, details to follow on that. And at that kickoff, we'll have food and we'll have um, hopefully a baptism or or ten. And then we'll also have the opportunity to sign up for small group. So if you've got questions about that, see me or see uh, Mark, uh, our brother right here. And um, he will... He will also be able to talk to you about that. He and I have been, been the, the point people with the elders uh, on that effort. So uh, talk to us, and we'll give you answers to any questions that you might have. We are really excited about this because we really think it may be transformative in the lives of a lot of us, and perhaps in yours as well. Now, moving back to uh, 1 Corinthians, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 12 today, and this is the start of a several-week discussion of spiritual gifts and the whole topic of spiritual gifts and about the value and importance of every person in the body of Christ. And kind of by way of negative example, I heard a guy recently, he's a well-known celebrity type preacher. He's written a lot of books that are at the Christian bookstore and he has one of these multi-site campuses Uh, across one of the major cities here in the country, and he referred to himself as, quote, a ten-talent pastor. In other words, in the parable of the talents, I'm the guy who got ten. And he referred to a number of his brethren, guys like me, as, you know, two or one-talent pastors. Uh, And that stuck in my craw just a little bit. Okay, uh, for several reasons. And first, because I didn't like being made to feel insignificant by this fellow. Now, but I think that more than my pride was, was being damaged here by what he had to say. Because I think it's problematic, not just for its obvious lack of humility, but also because 
it implies that in this guy's mind, not only is there a hierarchy in the body of Christ, and not only is he at the top of it, but that also it has something to do with him, and he deserves to be at the top of that hierarchy that he's created. And I want to tell you here as we open up to 1 Corinthians that nothing could be further from what the Bible actually has to say on the subject. It is a deeply, tragically unbiblical statement to think of yourself as somehow better because of the gifts that you have than everybody else with similar gifts. And, and I hope, if, I, if you ever catch me saying that, you have my permission to take me into the parking lot and beat me with whatever stick you can find, okay? Because that is a terribly prideful, awful thing to say. But in addition to that, it has nothing to do with the Scripture. Because the Scripture makes it very clear that it is God, the Holy Spirit, who apportions to each person gifts that he has chosen for them. Why? Because of his sovereign, gracious love. And it has nothing to do with us and everything to do with him. So I want to open up to um, look at spiritual gifts here in 1 Corinthians 12. And uh, if you have your Bible there, open it up. And look at verse 1 with me. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, as you come to this chapter, you need to understand the reason Paul wrote it. And it's this, that some of the Corinthian Christians are proclaiming themselves to be more spiritual than their brothers and sisters because of the gifts that they have. And in particular, the gift that they think is so great is specifically the gift of tongues. I have the gift of tongues, and that's a very obvious manifestation of the Spirit of God. And, you know, you were um, ticked last when God was handing out gifts for the team is the idea. And they think that speaking in tongues makes them superior to everybody else, and as you can imagine, that is causing some amount of division within the body of Christ there at Corinth. And Paul is going to spend, it's a serious division, because Paul is going to spend chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14 addressing it. It's a big issue. Now, I don't know how the Corinthian church, given all of the issues that, are, that Paul does address in this book, is even holding itself together. And perhaps it's even not holding itself together. And what he refers to as divisions is, well, this group has gone off over here, and this group has gone off over here, and this group has gone off over here, and they're splitting up. I don't know exactly what the situation is, but this is a very serious issue, and it's causing lots of division. And if you look at verse 1, it's, a, it's an interesting phrase. It says, now concerning, my Bible reads, spiritual gifts. Um, the, the, the Greek words there are actually ambiguous in terms, of, in terms of their grammar and structure. The way that they are spelled, they can be either taken as neuter, which would then lead to a translation like spiritual things or taking the context into account, spiritual gifts, or they can be taken as masculine, meaning spiritual ones, spiritual people. And I take it that Paul intends to say spiritual ones, spiritual people, because I think that what he's addressing specifically is this issue that some among the Corinthians, those who have the gift of tongues, Think of themselves as, quote, the spiritual ones. And everybody else is kind of a lower tier level on the humanity scale, right? They're back on the evolutionary chart a little bit from me, right? And and so I think he's, he's saying spiritual ones or spiritual people, that they are the pneumaticon. We are the spiritual folk. And But however you take it, Um, Paul is going to undermine that idea and say, look, 
I want to clear some things up on who is really spiritual and what constitutes giftedness. And the, the test that he lays out in these first three verses is, does this person believe in Jesus Christ as Lord? And so first he talks about pagans. And he says, you know, when you were a, when those of you who were pagans before you came to Christ, you know that you were led to idolatry. However you were led, you were led to idolatry. And so he's talking about, in these, I think, in these processions that they would have as part of a pagan life in a pagan city, they would have these giant parades, you know, like we have Claude Ellen days and other kinds of things. Well, they would have a procession that everybody in town would participate in. There's no spectators. Everybody joins the parade. And they would, you know, be celebrating Zeus or celebrating Athena or celebrating Aphrodite or what have you. And they would lead these giant, you know, kind of festive deals down to the idol temple and have sacrifices and worship there. And the procession always concluded, it was led, it led the people to the idol and the worship of this pagan god or goddess. And so Paul talks about that, and he says, and I also want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. Now, why, where does that come from? Why does he bring that up? Well, there are Jews who are also part of the Corinthian church. And the Jewish law says that cursed is everyone who has hanged on a tree. How did Jesus die? Quick question. Anybody know? Hanged on a tree. And so, obviously, he is cursed by God, right? He has to be. Now, what they did not understand is that Jesus is cursed by God. That's true. But not for his sin, but for yours. And his death is symbolic of Jesus taking the curse. Because remember what, what Adam, and Eve, how Adam and Eve sinned? With a tree in a garden, Jesus offers himself on a tree to take away sin from human beings. And he takes the curse from us and is laid on him. So they're right to say, in a sense, that Jesus is cursed, but they mean it in the sense of banned or forbidden like food you can't eat. To this day, lots of Jewish people say, well, I don't believe in Jesus because to be Jewish is not to believe in Jesus. And in addition to that, the historians tell us, uh, in fact, Justin Martyr, one of the early, uh, early church fathers, writes that in their synagogues at the time of his, in his day, that people who were Jewish, actually did say, as part of their worship, Jesus is accursed. Let no one believe in him. And so, if you're a pagan, you're led down to the idol temple, and you're having high old time, right? And if you're a Jew, you're not participating in that, but you do believe Jesus is cursed. How likely are either one of these groups of people to come to faith in Christ. They're not, is the underlying assumption. And so he says, no one says Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In other words, whatever background you came out of, whether you were a pagan believing in idols or whether you were a Jew rejecting Jesus as the Messiah who came for the Jewish people as well as for the rest of the world, However, your, whatever your background is, the only way a person comes to faith in Christ and accepts Jesus Christ as Lord is by the Holy Spirit. So who are the spiritual ones? Everybody who believes in Jesus. Because everybody who believes in Jesus believes in Jesus as a result of the Holy Spirit entering into their life and changing them and converting them and redeeming them from slavery to sin, death, and hell. So let's get clear. Who is the spiritual person? Everybody who's a believer. That's the point of these first three verses. A, person, a spiritual person is any person who has received new life and salvation by belief in Christ through the power of the Spirit. Every person has the Spirit. All Christians, not just ones with spectacular gifts, are therefore spiritual people. And he continues, he says, now there are varieties of gifts, 
but the same Spirit, and varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each individually as he wills. Now, a couple things I want you to notice here in this section. First, I want you to take that term where he, he uses the word gift there. I want you to underline it. And then I want you to understand this. I don't use a lot of Greek and Hebrew in my sermons, but this is a place where the Greek text that underlies our English Bible here is really important. The word for gift is the word charisma. And it's obviously where we get our English word, charisma, which means something different by, or where we talk about people who are into spiritual gifts as charismatic, right? Um, But the word has less to do with your level of excitement as it does to do with God's grace. Because at the root of the word charisma is the word charis, which is the word used throughout the whole New Testament for God's grace that he bestows on us in Christ through the Spirit. And so these are not just gifts in the sense of presence. You know, oh, I got a, you know, what did you get? Well, I got a paddle ball. What did you get? I got a pony. You know, no. (laughs) The idea is that these are gifts that are given by grace. That God, in his grace, gives us the gift that he wants us to have. That he individually identifies each person. You know, I think sometimes we have this idea that God is like a is like a guy sowing grass seed. You know, he just kind of flings them out there, and well, oh, you didn't. You, I guess you didn't land. You didn't stand in the right spot because you didn't have a good one land on you. No, the idea is is that God, by His grace, bestows each person with a gift or gifts. That they're given by grace. And this is, this is Paul's term, by the way. The only other place this is used, this idea of charisma or gifts, they are given by grace, is in 1 Peter 4. Otherwise, all the other references to it are in Paul. And it's his word. Uh, he, uses, he also uses that word to talk about a variety of things. He talks about it uh, in his deliverance from danger. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, his life was threatened and he escaped. And he says, God gave me charisma. He gave me a grace gift. He, Paul uses it to talk about God's grace in bringing salvation to humanity in Romans chapter 5, 15 and 16. And in verse 6, 23. Remember that one? Hope so. All right. Look it up if you don't know it. All right. Uh, he uses it to refer to God's election of the nation of Israel in Romans chapter 11, verse 29. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, to talk about celibate singleness as a grace gift given by God. So it's not just specifically the things we think of as spiritual gifts. You know, pastors and teachers and elders and, and apostles and prophets and all these things. Also, lots of other things are gifts by grace from God. And all these things come about through God's loving, sovereign choice. And look at verse 4 to 6 next. See this. Um, Look at these statements here. There are varieties of gifts, varieties of charisma, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, which is the uh, the word deaconing. The varieties of deaconing, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities or ministries, but the same God. Now, what you see there 
is that all of these different terms for the same thing all have a kind of a Trinitarian flavor. The Spirit, the Lord, and God the Father. So in other words, all the gifts of God come from a common source. They all come from a common source, but they are diverse, just as there is diversity and unity within the, bo- within the Godhead, there is diversity and unity within the body. So in other words, if you want to, remember we talked about if you want to understand submission and headship in marriage, you need to understand your Trinitarian theology. This is another place where you need to understand your Trinitarian theology. That there is diversity and unity within the Godhead, there's diversity and unity within the body of Christ as well. And then in addition to that, they not only have a common source, verse 7, they also have a common purpose. Look at that. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. In other words, I don't receive a spiritual gift so that I can get everybody in the world to say, Look at me! Aren't I great? No. The gifts that God gives to his people are given not for individual benefit and glorification, but for the benefit of the body that Jesus might be glorified. That, that in other words, like my gift is, is one of, of pastoring and teaching. But my job is to shepherd people and to encourage them to grow in Christ and to help lead them back to Christ if they, if they wander away a little bit, like a shepherd with a, with a wandering sheep. That's my gift. Because the idea is, who's going, to, who's going to teach people God's word and who's going to lead them? That's my job. Okay. And by the way, it's one that scares me most of the time. Because I know that one day, God will, I will stand before God and I will give account, not only for myself, but for all of you. And that scares me. And I think it ought to, to a degree. Because it's a, it's a significant responsibility. But you know what? Whatever your gift is, is a significant responsibility too. And one day you will stand before God and give account for yourself and the people you were to care for. Because all of us have gifts that are given for the common good. That every one of us is not someone who exists for themselves, but someone who exists for the benefit of the body. They all come from God because it is God who works all things in all people and it is God who gives gifts to the church. And third, um, Paul begins to list some individual gifts. Oh, by the way, one other thing. I want you to see this. Verse 7. What's the first two words there? To each. In other words, nobody misses out, right? It isn't like it isn't like when uh, you know we were playing playing football on the playground. You know, I'm team captain. Well, I'm the other team captain. And you go out and okay, well he was left standing there. I guess you don't get to play. You know, uh, no. To each person is given a gift, a manifestation of the Spirit. In other words, this is the thing that identifies that the Spirit is present in your life. That as you see God working through you through this, that you see the manifestation of the Spirit happening in your life as you minister to other people. Um, Paul gives a list here of some spiritual gifts beginning in, in, um, in verse 8. Uh, it isn't an exhaustive list. It's not even the same list that he gives at the end of the same chapter. And it's not the same list that he gives in Romans chapter 12 or Ephesians 4 or Peter gives in 1 Peter 4. By the way, that's how I learned it in seminary. The rule of the 12s and the 4s. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4. Right? You've got to remember that stuff for the test. Right? So, anyway, um, but that's where, they, that's where the passages are. And none of the lists match. 
And so it seems likely to me that we don't have an exhaustive list anywhere or a comprehensive list of gifts and that therefore there are probably more gifts than the, just the ones that are listed. That these are exemplary but they're not, it's not an exhaustive thing. You know, as an example, music is not mentioned. I happen to think music is a spiritual gift. It's something that is seen in both the Old Testament and the New Testament as something to be used in worship to glorify God. But it's not in our New Testament specifically identified. But nevertheless, I think it's a gift. And I think there are other gifts that people also have that are likewise not mentioned, but nevertheless are spiritual gifts as they're used to glorify God and to bring Him honor and to do good for the body of Christ. Uh, so... Um, notice these things, though. All these gifts are come from the same Holy Spirit, so there is no reason for pride on the one hand or downheartedness on the other. And two, the gifts that the Corinthians think the most of, which have to do with tongues, those are all listed last. Okay? Those are all listed last. Paul's making a point with that. They're also listed last at the end of the chapter, which I can see we're not going to get to. Um, we'll pick up, we were not, I, I was overly ambitious. We're not going to get through all of chapter 12, so don't worry. All right. Um, and, then, and then again, in verse 11, Paul underlines that it's the Spirit who, who determines who gets what gift and, in, and at what level. That gift is given. You know, I have four children, and they are all different. Gloriously, wonderfully, amazingly different. You know, Karen and I have joked for a long time, like as an example with our, about our sons, that John, on the one hand, is the engineer and the builder and the architect. You know, he's in there with his Legos and his connects his magnetic stuff and, you know, uh, what do they call that? Erector sets. You know, he's got that stuff and he likes it, right? But if he sees something that looks somewhat semi kind of dangerous, he's kind of like, you yeah, know, I don't think so. I'm out, right? Nathan, on the other hand, is like, hmm, looks dangerous. Chance of injury is high. Hmm, let's try it. <laughs> okay, so we have joked that John will build the rocket and Nathan will ride on it, okay? Um, but that's just my sons. They're both very different. They're not cookie-cutter in, cookie little individuals. They are different, okay? I've got one girl who loves basketball and one girl who wants to stay in the house, Okay? Uh, they're different, and God recognizes that we are different, and he gives different gifts to each person as he wants because he loves us. And he wants us to serve him as we are made, and he gives us a gift for us to benefit the body. Now, as for the gifts themselves, I'm not sure, honestly, what to do with a few of these. Because, uh, let me just highlight that, okay? Um, the first two that are listed, the utterance of wisdom and the utterance of knowledge, are both given by the Spirit. Now, this is the only place that these are mentioned in the New Testament. And it's also, since it is the only place, you'd be looking for clarification. Paul, what is that? And he doesn't explain. It's apparently known at the church in Corinth, but he doesn't explain. And so I'm reluctant to speculate as to what those might be. Uh, at the same time, I'll, I will tell you that a lot of com what a lot of commentators will say is that wisdom would be the, the uh, ability like Solomon to know what to do in a given situation. And they also would say, these commentators would say that uh, the word of knowledge would be the ability to uh, recall facts and, and specific things that you need to know in a given situation. So 
So in other words, it would be like, what, what, what does the scripture say about X? This person with the word of knowledge would know what the scripture says. Now, again, that's speculation because there's no clarification given as to what those things are. Um, but nevertheless, they are gifts that the Spirit has given to the church. And he says here, um, another faith by the same Spirit. For me, probably the best example of faith is either guys who get martyred, you know, who go to the stake, believing in Jesus, and you can kill me if you want to, but I'm not going to deny the Lord who bought me. Okay, Those kind of guys. Or a guy like George Mueller. You may not know who he is, but uh, back in the last century, uh, George Mueller was a British fellow that opened orphanages all over the city of Bristol, England. And he uh, did it in a very unusual way. He simply sat down and prayed about it. And he's like, Lord, I need to build some orphanages to house these orphans, and I need 100,000 pounds. Now, back in the 1800s, that's the definition of real money. Um, at the time, somebody's annual salary might have been two or 300 pounds. 100,000 pounds he needed to house these hundreds and hundreds of orphans he wanted to care for. And he went to his office and he prayed about it and they got built. And he never asked anybody for a dime, ever. In fact, one day the story is told, and this is a true story. There was nothing to eat for all these hundreds of kids that he was taking care of. Not a thing to eat in the whole house. I'm not talking about like, well, we got um, two boxes of macaroni, some tortillas, and a half a jar of salsa. I mean, there's nothing to eat in the house. And so he calls all the kids together. They sit down at the table. Get everybody seated. We're going to pray. Thank you, God, for the food that you have provided. There's not a thing in the pantry. And as he gets done praying for the food that God has provided, which is not yet there. Excuse me, sir. Um, my uh, bread truck broke down outside <laughs> your orphanage, and the bread is all going to spoil before I can get it fixed. Do you think that your orphans would want all these pastries and bread? Yeah. <laughs> Bring it in. And he was, it, was, it was just like an everyday occurrence with George Mueller that God would just supernaturally provide or the rent would need paid and he would have no money for this and he would pray about it in his office and, there, and the, you know, his manager is coming in and going, uh, Mr. Mueller, yes, uh, there's no money to pay the rent this month. Give me a minute. He'd go pray and all of a sudden there'd be random money that would show up in the mailbox to pay the bill. Now that guy had faith. He trusted the Lord in a way far above what the ordinary person would do. He had the gift of faith. Um, next mentioned is um, gifts of healing. That's various types of ability to supernaturally heal the sick. Uh, you know, doctors heal people. And God heals. But then there are people like Elijah who could heal the sick, who could raise the dead. Paul raised the dead. Guy fell asleep while he was preaching. Whoa, fell out the window, died. They <laughs> he went out to the guy, raised him up. He was alive. How did Paul do that? By the Spirit. He had gifts of healing. You know, Peter could have his shadow pass over people who were sick, and they would be healed. He had a gift of healing. Um, the gifts of, gifts of, that refers to gifts of miracles, I think it's things like casting out demons, uh, multiplying food, walking on water, calming the storm, things like Jesus did. Uh, distinguishing between spirits is the ability to distinguish between false prophets and true prophets, those who speak from God and those who do not. Discernment. And 
uh, as an example, you've got um, King Jehoshaphat. It's a great name. Some of you young moms think on that one. But Jehoshaphat uh, is king of Judah, and he, he, he is related to King Ahab of Israel, and they're going to go off to war together. And so he's at Ahab's court, and he says, Ahab, uh, you know, call a prophet of God to speak to us. And he brings out Zedekiah. And Zedekiah's got these two iron horns that he's made, and he's like, you're going to be like a bull that runs over your enemies. Okay? And Josephat says, um, isn't there a prophet of the Lord we can inquire of? And he says, yeah, bring up Micaiah out of prison. I put him there because I hate him because he never says anything good about me. But nevertheless, Micaiah was the true prophet of God, and Jehoshaphat could recognize the difference between one and the other. And you may have that ability of distinguishing those who speak on behalf of the Lord and those who speak whatever is on their mind. Uh, there's last of all are mentioned speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues, which I take to be, to mean known languages. In other words, they're not they're not some sort of language that's not spoken on earth. They're la- they're languages spoken by people on the earth today. Uh, that isn't learned by the speaker, but nevertheless enables them to communicate as Peter did in Acts two to share the gospel. And also, there are those who have the ability to interpret tongues, so that, as an example, this tongue, the person who has the gift of tongues might use it in worship. Well, if we all speak English and this guy speaks Swahili, that's his special tongue that he is given by the Lord, that's not going to be a whole lot of help for us. But a person might be there who has the gift of interpreting tongues who can interpret then what is said to us so that we might be edified by it as well. Now, uh, I'm not sure, again, this is not an exhaustive list, and Paul gives some more um, at the bottom of the chapter, but I'm not sure that all of these gifts that he does mention are available today. Uh, And I say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, we know that there are some gifts that are not available today, like, as an example, at the bottom of the chapter, he mentions the gift of apostleship. Well, I'm pretty sure that one's not around. And the reason that I'm sure that it's not around is this, that in order to be an apostle, you had to both have witnessed Jesus' ministry and seen him raised from the dead. No one in the, our congregation, no one alive today, is, meets both of those qualifications. And so you cannot be an apostle. There is no apostolic succession either, incidentally. You can't pass it down to someone else. You had to see the resurrected Jesus, and you had to witness his earthly ministry to qualify, and that gift died out. I also think prophecy has probably died out, that some of these other gifts may have died out. And not to say that God doesn't still do some of these things, but whether a person might have, like as an example, I have never seen or know anyone who has seen anyone supernaturally healed. Now, I have seen some some sideshow attraction that purports to be healing, but I've never seen anyone actually healed in the way the Scripture describes and, on t- and, and so I believe God heals, but whether or not he gives the gift of healing today, I'm not sure. Now, I say all that not because I want to rain on the party with reference to spiritual gifts, but because I want us to be careful that we not be carried along following someone who purports to be doing something that they're not really doing, and that isn't from the Spirit of God. I want, to, want us to use the gift of discernment to make sure that what we're doing is really honoring to God. Now, I want to wrap this up. Like I say, we're not going to get through the rest of this. I wanted to, but there's just not time. Um, 
first thing that I want you to, to take as point of just a, just as a point of application from this text that we've looked at so far is this. We need to be humble about our gift. Because whatever our gift is, it's not ours. It's not ours. First of all, it was given to us by God. And so we can't in any sense be puffed up about it and say, well, I have the gift of whatever. As a way of looking down on my brothers and sisters, can't do that. It's not yours anyway. It came as a grace gift from God. So we need to be humble about it. Uh, it's not because of, it, because of your wonderful specialness or your super awesomeness that God gave you that gift, but because of his sovereign grace and love for you and because of his desire to see you serve the body of Christ with your gift. Uh, and the second thing is, as a church here, we are going to honor every gift. We're not going to look down on people who have what we think of as a lesser gift than ours, and we are not going to bow down before those that we think have a higher one. Instead, we're going to praise God for how he has gloriously arranged the body so that we can be of service to one another. You know, Later on, he's going to talk about gifts of service, gifts of administration. My wife is a gifted administrator. And she is great at organizing people. Karen loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Okay? <laughs> she does. Okay? And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Those kind of gifts are necessary. If you've ever been to Awana and, and tried to think, how will I deal with 100 kids uh, below the age of fifth grade running around this place? Okay? You know how you deal with that? Administrators. That's how you deal with that. Okay? He talks about gifts of discernment, and gifts of helping, and gifts of service to one another. These are gifts too, and they need to be honored. And lastly, we're going to use whatever gift we have to serve others and honor Jesus. Um. One of the things that bothers me a great deal as a pastor is when someone says to me, I don't know what my gift is, not as a way of seeking information, but as a way of making excuses for the fact that they are not serving anywhere. Let me tell you how you find out what your gift is. Number one, start doing something that sounds fun. <laughs> okay. Or that sounds appealing in some way. Because whatever you're attracted to doing, even if it's not something, by the way, that we're currently doing, start doing it anyway. And the reason that that sounds appealing to you is because that's probably an area that you are gifted. Or here's the other way. And I got this one from Rick Rosetto. This is not original to me, but this is great. Whatever you criticize, that's probably your gift, <laughs> okay? So in other words, like if you're the guy who's like, man, there's so many weeds in the yard, and the lawn just never looks right, and it bugs me, okay? Guess what your gift is? Find a lawnmower. Talk to John McCall, and we'll hook you up, Okay? <laughs> Uh, if, if it bothers you that there's not enough, there's just not enough classes and there's not enough teaching going on here, guess what you're probably supposed to be doing? Teaching one of them. If it bugs you that to see red numbers in the bulletin, when it talks about our giving statements and all that, right? Guess what you're supposed to be doing? You're supposed to be giving, right? Whatever bugs you is a lot of times an indication of what, where God has in indicated a need for you to function. I became kind of famous for that when I was in my previous ministry. Um, there was a gathering of women. My wife was present, 
and one of the ladies was bending her ear about some particular thing she would like to have me do. And one of the other ladies around the table spoke up and said, you should talk to pastor about that. And then another one spoke up and said, and yeah, and then he'll ask you to do it. (laughs) Okay. And that is the reality of it, though. The thing that bugs us, the areas that we're attracted to, those are the areas we ought to serve. Because God has given us a gift not to benefit us, but to benefit everybody else and to glorify him. So if you're not doing anything, come see me. And we'll explore the scripture together. And we'll pray and we'll seek the Lord and we'll ask him to identify what it is you should be doing. Because we are here to serve, not to soak. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word speaks to us so clearly and it upends all of our pride and all of our... um, self-professed piety and spirituality, you point out that everything that we have is from you and that all things are a gracious gift that comes from your hand because you love us and you love the church that you have called into existence and you would see yourself glorified and your people cared for and served in it. And Father, we thank you for the way you have gloriously arranged the body by your Holy Spirit for the way that you have decided to care for the members of the body as they care for one another, and that all the needs of the body of Christ are met by the gifts that you have sprinkled throughout. And Father, we we pray that all of us might have an eager desire to serve one another by the Spirit's power with the Spirit's gift that Jesus Christ might be exalted and glorified. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.